morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. Uh, and I'm just um, so glad that Brad is back with you as well as your shepherd after walking through a season of grief, which he'll continue to walk through. And so uh, I encourage you to just continue to encourage him as he moves into a, a new season of life, as we all must, uh, and become for one another people of hope. And so great opportunity. I know you'll hear more from Brad, uh, but just my encouragement to you is to encourage him. I was planning on being here anyway, but today, actually, this is the only service I'm doing because I came down with a little viral thing as well. So Jack from Northeast went over to Green Lake to speak uh, and has been there this morning so that I can go home and curl up in a ball <laughs> when we're done here. But this is great because uh, it's fun to, it's fun to actually, it's fun to only do one service. It's really great. It reminds me of some times when I lived in Friday Harbor. We met at Friday Harbor High School and there was one service and about 115, 120 people. So uh, it's the good old days, right? Good to, good to be with you. Uh, the, the, uh, topic this morning is about teaching, and I just want to say something about that before we pray. In Ephesians chapter 4, if you'll just listen as I read, please don't turn there, but listen. It says this, that Christ gave some to the church as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and there's a specific kind of job description given. Those folk are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In other words, uh, teaching is not offered to the church by Christ in order uh, simply to inspire or motivate or uh, create for a community an emotional moment of feeling good. There's a specific word here. Church, uh, teaching is given to the church as a gift to equip the church. So over in Mark 16, after Jesus was from the dead, he gives a mandate really that is given to all of Christ's followers. And he, and he goes out and he says, profoundly actually, he goes out and he says, preach to all creation. Now that's, a, that's an awesome word. Preach to all, what does that even mean? Preach to all creation. Well, for, the first thing you learn in that is that uh, no teacher can do that because we are limited, each one of us, in our humanity. None of us can speak to all of creation, but collectively we can speak to all of creation. And so the teaching ministry given to the church and this thing that we are doing right now is not intended to be a substitute for your responsibility to be the presence of Christ, both verbally and in your life, out in the world. You are the ones who are preaching to all creation. I took this literally in Friday Harbor because I was, I'd never been a pastor before and I had to preach every week. I'd get up in the morning and I'd go down to uh, American camp and there's a beach down there and I'd literally walk along the beach and preach my sermon. There were whales. And so I would say, I'm preaching to the whales before I'm preaching to you, right? Preaching to creation. And so uh, preaching to creation 
can include that, but it doesn't really mean that. It actually means that we are called together to be the presence of Christ in the world. And uh, this moment that we have together in teaching ministry is to equip us for that. So let's take a minute, we'll pray, and then we'll look at the text that we see this morning. Father, thanks so much that we can gather here uh, within these walls to listen for your voice. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. You give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. Shape us, Father, to be people of hope in the world, and we'll thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so this, there's a story that Brad read about Mary and Martha. And how many, how, just to, how many are familiar with the story? Raise your hands if you're familiar with the story. My wife and I, for 30 years now, we've gone back and forth on this story. And it still happens to this day. Uh, some of you know Donna. Donna's a very practical person. She's a doer. And she's like, I hate that story. <laughs> because uh, it puts... It puts Martha in a bad light and Mary in a good light. How many have ever felt that way? You're practical people in the room. And you're like, what's up with that stupid story that indicts the people who are doing meaningful things, right? While the people who are just sitting around reading their Bibles are elevated. Like, what's that about? And so my, this was Donna, and it still is. She's annoyed by that by that story. And I can say that. I can indict her this morning because this is not being broadcast. I know she's not watching. She's, if she's not in the room, she will never hear this. That's good news. But it, this story bugs her. And, and I get it at a level, right? Uh, what's happened, when we read this story at a cursory level, is uh, we develop this kind of uh, pol- this polarity, right? Between mysticism and activism, and between contemplation and practicality. And so over here, mysticism and contemplation, good. Practicality, activism, bad, right? And the result of that has been, uh, many people are confused about this story, and many people feel guilty who are practical people. And even we, those of us who aren't practical people, and I'm not practical, um, I feel like I've always got things to do looming in the background so that it's easier to not read my Bible and just do things. And to be blunt, doing things is often more rewarding in the moment. Because when you do something, it's done, it's measurable, you see it, you know it, boom, did it. This is why I love splitting wood. It's my favorite thing to do when I have some free time, is split wood. Why? Because this wood was not split, and now it's split. Yeah! I did something. I can see it, I can measure it, I can quantify it, uh, and it's, that's so different than anything I do in my, in my job. It's like, well, I talked again today. Don't know what it meant. Don't know if anyone was listening. But I talked, or I read, or I wrote, and it just just goes out there, and you never know what's going to happen. And so there's this practicality piece that makes that makes it difficult to understand why Jesus seems to be indicting uh, uh, Martha. Does that does that make sense? So that's kind of setting up. But the, but the deal here is, it's important to key in on the thing that Jesus says here when he says, and I put this is Jesus' words literally. Quote: Only one thing is necessary. Unquote. So here's what Jesus is saying. Only one thing is necessary. But the necessary thing is not reading your Bible. 
Though you need to read your Bible, that's a means to the necessary thing. But what is the necessary thing? And, and this is the thing when, when you fly a little higher above the scripture and you see what God is about. All through the scripture, God is about transformation. I mean, you look at Abraham, he, his, his story is a story of transformation. Jacob, transformation. Judah, transformation. Moses, transformation. Joshua, transformation. Isaiah, transformation. Jeremiah, transformation. Paul, you know, mega transformation. God is about moving us. So, so what, the story that God is writing in the world is a story of transformed lives. And so if the question is this, what does our loving God desire for each of us? The answer is that all of us are invited by God into a journey of ongoing transformation so that in increasing measure, every one of us in the room reflect the character of Jesus. And this matters for many, many reasons. But for the moment, I'm going to note that the most important reason that this matters is because when, I, when I'm on this journey of transformation, I'm now aligned with the life for which I'm created. Does that make sense? In other words, uh, we, I say sometimes, look, uh, we exist to help one another become all God had in mind when he made us, right? And so what did God have in mind? Well, here's what God had in mind for everybody in the room. That we would be moving from greed to generosity, from lust to love. From, from oppression uh, to justice, from bitterness to forgiveness, from complacency to engagement, from self-righteousness to humility. God wants us to be moving so that in increasing measure we reflect the character of Christ so that the light that is Christ shines through us into the world. It's the one thing that actually Mary chose. Mary chose transformation, and transformation certainly leads to activity, but, but the, the thing that brought joy to Jesus' heart was this, Mary is interested in transformation. And this is where many of us trip up, right here. Because if transformation is a byproduct of intimacy with Christ, and it is, then let's acknowledge this, intimacy with Christ is a hard concept to grasp. Does that make sense? Or what does it mean to live a life of intimacy with someone who died 2,000 years ago, rose, ascended, and is no longer among us visibly. Like, how am I to be intimate with this invisible, ethereal Jesus? And so this morning, what I want to talk about is this consideration. How do we pursue intimacy with Christ? And what we see, and it's vital we see this together and really engage with this, two things. We see that God has given us a vision for our transformation, and God has provided a means for our transformation. We want to look at both of those things. God, the vision for our transformation means to transformation, and we will, we will look at these just for a few minutes here. And all of this, of course, leads beautifully to this table, because in the end, it's Christ who transforms, and we're called to receive all that he is in order that we might become all that we're created to be. So, vision for transformation means for transformation. We begin with vision for transformation. And God's vision for transformation, pretty clear, God's desire is to see communities, such as the one gathered right here within this room, communities responsive to revelation. Like, if you remember nothing else this morning, remember this. Uh, transformation comes through communities, what? Responsive to revelation. Can you say it with me? Responsive to revelation, because that's what it's all about. I've got to be responsive to Revelation. Let me read for you one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. In a minute, I'll tell you why it's a favorite. But the Apostle Paul shares here this, this pattern, kind of a prototype vision for transformation. 
He says here, whenever a person turns to the Lord, uh, the veil is taken away. And then verse 17, the Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And then the crux for this morning, verse 18, this. But we all, that's us in the room. We all, now picture this. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Now, engage with this just for a moment with me. If you have a Bible, it's good to even look at it here because you, sometimes you really have to make, you have to really pay attention to be liberated. And here's the deal. We all with unveiling face, unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. There's an active verb and a passive verb. And if you don't like grammar, bear with me. Just remember, it's really important in the moment, right? Active verb, that's what you must do. Passive verb, that's what's done to you. Alright? So in this text, 2 Corinthians 3.18, what's the active verb? Not a quiz, I'll, t- I'll give you the answer for free. Right? Active verb, beholding. In other words, what's your one responsibility before God? To behold the glory of the Lord. That's the one thing you have to do. The, in other words, how am I transformed? I, like I show up and I receive revelation. At, like I'm talking to Keith and Esther before in a little five minute sharing time. Keith's off skiing in Vail. Esther's, you know, down in Mexico. And, and the thing is, when you're in Mexico, you don't have to try and get a tan. True? Like, isn't it a byproduct of something else? And what's a byproduct of? Anyone? We're a small group. It's, it's the sun. And all you're going to do is, sh- like, if you stay in your room and watch, you know, TV, no tan for you. But, like, all you have to do is show up and a byproduct of gazing in the sun or, you know, laying there and reading a book or whatever, you have a tan. And then around here, particularly around here, you come back from Hawaii or Mexico, everybody knows where you've been. Everyone knows, right? They're like, oh, or at least we know this, you haven't been here the last two weeks, right? We know it. We know, by the, we know it by the color of your skin. So you show up, and the byproduct of showing up is transformation. This is really liberating. So, so there's an observation here under this rubric of vision for transformation, which is this. Observation number one, transformation is God's responsibility, not yours. Like God's vision for transformation, a community responsive to revelation. But understand, transformation is God's business, not yours. That's why it says here, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Legalism, fear, anxiety? No. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Why? Because all I have to do is show up and sit at the feet of Jesus and a byproduct of showing up is transformation. It's the end of self-improvement. Partly because we don't even know what we ought to be becoming. So when it comes to my personal life and well-being, there's an important sense in this text that's a little bit contrarian to prevailing conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom says, uh, you know, 10-year goal, 20-year goal, you know, build it out, make a plan, live into it. And, and then I come to this text and I, and I realize, oh, wait a minute, Christ is transforming me. And so what happens if I, if I have a plan, and this is my own story, what happens if I have a plan that, that's predominantly rural and as a byproduct of living, uh, showing up with Christ, I'm moved into an urban setting? What happens? Like if my plan is my idol, then I don't go. Do you see? So, so transformation is this by God does things in our lives and we, it's liberating because I don't even know who I'm supposed to become. 
And I went through this period where this verse became uh, like super meaningful in my life when I was 20 years old and I was studying architecture and I was coming kind of out of a depression and I'd been challenged at a, at a retreat to make knowing God the main goal of my life. And then, I, and then I encountered this verse and I realized, oh, wait a minute. If transformation is God's responsibility, I don't have to worry anymore about even my personality. I don't have to worry about it. Because my personality is not my responsibility, it's God's responsibility. So uh, prior to uh, being liberated through 2 Corinthians 3, I was like this. I think I'm an introvert. And so I would, like, who can identify with this? You're trying to build yourself out a little bit? I think I'm an introvert. And so, then I, you know, I, I'm a Calpine studying architecture. People are like, hey, you want to go to the party? And I'd be, no, I'm an introvert. And I'd stay home and I'd read Dostoevsky. And... <laughs> you know, Kant and stuff like that, candles and tea, because that's introverts or tea, extroverts or coffee, you know. So, and then I'm bored out of my mind. No, I must not be an introvert. I must be an extrovert. So second quarter, this is true, second quarter, I'm like, I'm going to every party. I had a contest with my roommate. How many, how many girls can you take out on a date in one week? Like we, like we had a contest. Coffee with you, dinner with you, tennis with you, right? And then, you know, parties and dances, I'm exhausted. No, that's not me either, right? And so, when publishers say brand yourself, I'm like this, I don't even know who I am. But that's okay with me. Because ultimately, it's not my responsibility, it's God's. So, so it's liberating for me to come to a point of saying, you know what, I'm not going to worry anymore. Introvert, extrovert, um, uh, you know, what's that Myers-Briggs, ENFP, you know, am I really an F or am I a T or am I a J? And, you know, what am I? Don't worry about it. Focus on Christ. Because transformation is not your responsibility, it's God's responsibility. For the Spirit of the Lord, don't you love that? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty. Liberty for a predominantly introverted person to go to parties. Liberty for an extrovert to stay home and read a book. Because you, you, as Jesus did, defy categorization. Just focus on Jesus. Let him make you into what he wants you to be. But the transformation is God's responsibility, not yours. So I have a responsibility beholding and then uh, God's responsibility, transforming. So, so transformation is God's business. Here's a second observation under this point, vision of transformation. It's that beholding leads to movement. In other words, God transforms us. As I behold, God transforms me. So there's this word behold. It's theodzomai. We, the, we get an English word theater from that. And so it means like I'm all in. I'm engaged. I'm allowing uh, the, the, the revelation to affect me. And, and when that happens, there's transformation that happens and, and movement. And, and so I'm going to just name, you know, three ways that the scripture tells us that beholding moves us. When I behold, I move from barren to fruitful. It's a promise in scripture. I move from barren to fruitful. Let me read for you Psalm um, 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the seat of sinners, uh, sit in the seat of scoffers, 
But, now here's the deal, this is the beholding piece. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. So you get the picture? I'm beholding. Now here's, here's the, here's the uh, descriptive of such a person. If I'm beholding Christ in some way, then I become like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. It's a pretty simple principle, right? Um, for a tree to be fruitful, of course, it needs, it needs moisture. And I, this, this psalm lives for a guy who grew up in the Central Valley of California because it's a desert, right? Every Friday I go, on my day off, I go fishing. Every Friday I go to the Kings River. And so you, like you're driving out of the Kings River and it's, it, every, it's just dust. It's everywhere. Unless it's irrigated for farmland, it's dry. Six inches of rain a year and hot. And then you, then you show up in the river and you know that you're at the river long before you're at the river because the river is markered by what? Trees. Right along the river, trees. How are they doing so well? It's the water, right? They're just drawing, continually drawing on the streams. And that makes those trees in particular uh, fruitful, right? So there's this observation here. The best life is lived by planting ourselves by a tree of living water. Well, what is that tree of living water? Well, <laughs> that would be Christ. First uh, Corinthians 10, I'll just tell you, you can read it later. That would be Christ, tree of living water. But of course, to get to Christ, I need the text. I mean, Christ is available in fellowship. Christ is available in nature. But what I discover in fellowship and what I discover in nature is, is bound and clarified and anointed by my understanding of the text. So the text informs all that broader revelation. But if I'm going to be planted by, by the tree of living water, if I am going to live in intimacy with Jesus, it will be to the extent that I'm drawing upon these streams of living water and those streams of living water are revealed to me. Christ himself is revealed to me through the text, right? And it says that such a person, the person planted by this tree, uh, excuse me, planted by the stream, such a person will be will be blessed. It's a promise, right? And again, I'll just say to you, this is beautiful for this reason. Now, first I'm freed from introspection because of 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now with this text, I'm freed from anxiety about fruitfulness. All of us want to live meaningful lives, right? We, you know, we want our employment to go well. We want our kids to be happy. We, we want uh, uh, everything, you know, we want our neighbors to know Jesus. We want all this stuff. And so we, we've got a paradigm. And then here's the thing. I, then I go, man, I wonder if I'm, if I'm actually going to be fruitful. Like, and then I go after it. And then to the extent that my kids are obedient, I'm like this. Wow, Richard, you're a good guy. Like, your kids are fruitful. And then when my kids are, are you know, disobedient to the Lord or they're, you know, they're wandering, they have doubts, I go, what have I done wrong that my kids are messing up? How come my neighbors don't know Jesus? How come the church isn't growing or whatever it is? Do you see? And so now I'm like anxious about fruit. Can I just free you from that? By saying to you, look, you have one responsibility. Be a tree, plant by the water, and then let the fruit come. But, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a subtext of that, which is this. The, the, the scope of the fruit, like how big is the fruit, the nature of the fruit, uh, the timing of the fruit, that's not your problem. It's God's problem. So don't even worry about it, right? Expect fruit, but don't worry about the scope, nature, and timing of the fruit because it's God's responsibility. It's intended to liberate, you see. But 
I have to be planted there. Jesus said it, John 14, abide in me. And then here's the promise. You will what? You'll bear fruit. You'll be fruitful. But you have to do something. What's your responsibility? Abide in me. Well, how do I do that? Well, I plant by the living water. Well, how do I do that? Well, you know, I make Jesus my source of, you know, delight and life. And I can't get there without the scripture. So the scripture is a means to an end here, but the end is Christ, right? So I move from barren to fruitful. Then, this is interesting, I move from soul to spirit, like I'm moving. I'm on a journey from being a soulish human to a spiritual human. I want to read for you 1 Corinthians 2.14. This is a really fun little discussion. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Natural man. Now, uh, this is a New American Standard Bible, which is a fine Bible. But the, it actually even falls short a little bit here. Let me tell you why. The word natural here, uh, it, it's in the Greek language, it's sukike, from which we get the word soul. So here's a better literal translation. The soulish person is unable to accept the spiritual stuff. So 1 Thessalonians 5, you are body, soul, and spirit, right? You're made of all those things. Um, The spirit is where, uh, you know, the resurrected Christ is now united with your spirit, and that's like your source. And And then... uh, your, you know, your body, that's self-explanatory. But what about your soul? Well, here's the thing. I don't have time to develop this for you. Uh, and you don't have to trust me, but I hope you do when I say this, right? Uh, and I can, I'll develop it later somewhere. I have developed it elsewhere. But here's the deal. Here's your soul. It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's like the non-physical part of you that makes up your personality, your mind, will, and your emotions. And the, deal, the, the deal for all of us to see in the room is this. Our, like... Apart from Christ, our soul governs our, like, how we live. And all of us in the room, apart from Christ, are, we bring, in, like, vast imbalances to our daily living by virtue of our soul. Some people in the room are mind people. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, you live inside your head all the time. This is me. I'm a mind person. Some people are soul people. This, uh, excuse me, emotion people. This means that you, like your emotions tend to govern your life and uh, you live both for and by feelings. And some people are will people. Uh, and will people in the room are generally list people who like to make lists and check things off. Just quick survey. Since you're a congregation, you get to know each other, right? Um, who are the mind people in the room? By self-definition. Who are the soul people? Like emotion. Who are the will people in the room? We're we're actually well represented, right? A little of each. And I will just say to you, it's even true that uh, denominations form along these lines, right? Soul, like we love feelings, that often lends itself to kind of an overly Pentecostal expression where it's all about emotion, uh, not about mind. And then there's a whole Reformed tradition that's often all about mind and not about emotion. As a will tradition, it's all about doing, that's called legalism, right? And so you can, like, you can find a camp to fit your soul. Uh, But Hebrews 4 tells us, verse 12, 
The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the, one of the purposes of the Bible is to, is to like divide between, watch this, soul and spirit. So the purpose of the Bible is to bring us to Christ so that Christ can show me where my soul is predominating and bring that into order. Does, does this even make sense to you? And so, the, I mean, the beauty of this is that as I get into the Bible, God begins to show me, Richard, look, all, like you live inside your head at the expense of reality. And so it's time for you to move out of your head and move into relationship because I tend to live in my head. And another person tends to live at the emotional level of relationship and never encounter their own thoughts and God moves them the other way. And another person needs to open up to their own emotions and another person uh, actually has a very weak will and so I think about doing and I feel good when I do but I actually never do. Us uh, to, to uh, a strength of will or a strength of emotion or a strength of mind and uh, wow, how does that happen? Word of God. I mean, that's what the text says, right? The Bible does this because Christ does this. And so when we come to the text, Christ moves us from a soulish person to a spiritual person. First Corinthians, again, Paul says um, in chapter 3, he says, look, I couldn't speak to you to, as spiritual men. In uh, chapter 3, 1 of Corinthians, because you could, you could only handle milk, not solid food. And... So he contrasts spiritual man here to animal man. That's literally the French Bible calls the natural man animal man. Because in this, in this kind of construct of body, soul, and spirit, the overwhelming consensus would be that what makes us image bearers of God is that we have body, soul, and spirit. Animals have body and soul, like sentient beings. And then, you know, plants have bodies. So you have body, body, soul, body, soul, spirit. Image bearers, body, soul, spirit. But we're called to live not by the soul, but by the spirit. So what moves us? We have to be in the word. And then, uh, finally, we move from old to new. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. I'll just read uh, briefly here so you understand this movement as well. Colossians 3, 9. Don't lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. So I come to Christ... And I was old, now I'm new, and I'm called to put on the new. And he says here, uh, it's this weird exhortation, don't lie since you've laid aside the old self. What does this mean? Well, I mean, we take it at a very kind of obvious cursory level over deception. And it's true, right? Don't lie to one another. That's true. But the exhortation is embedded in this declaration that, look, if you're in Christ, it's declarative. It says, you have laid aside the old self. So there was a you governed by the soul, governed by the flesh, governed by a sense of shame, inadequacy, guilt, self-righteousness, fear, ambition, whatever it is, there was an old you. And it's, this is what it says again, verse 9. You have laid that old self aside. You have. Like if you're in Christ, you said, I don't want to live that way anymore, and you put on a new self, right? So then this is what he says, don't lie to each other. What he's saying here is <laughs> stop living as if you're old when you're new. Does that make sense? Look, you're new. So let's make this practical. You're new. Why are you complaining about your job? 
Like, why are you doing that? Is that the new self? No, not according to 1 Corinthians 10, because 1 Corinthians 10 says, look, since we're in Christ now, stop complaining. Stop grumbling. I mean, I get there's truth-telling. I get that there's questions. I get that there's frustrations. But the point would be, complaining is an old thing. Gratitude is a new thing. Like, if you've laid aside the old self, why? <laughs> Let me just ask. If you laid aside the old self, <sighs> why are you greedy? Why are you holding on to your money rather than giving? If you've laid aside the old self, why is there a secret pattern of lust that nobody knows about? But you know, if you've laid aside the old self, stop lying. Live as the new person that you are. Well, how can I do that? Boy, I'd love to do that. So, you know, he, he hammers this in Colossians 3. And then the exhortation that equips you to do this is this. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You want to stop lying? Saturate yourself with the scripture. And then here's what will happen. When you saturate yourself with the scripture, now God has found a basis uh, through Christ for bringing conviction to your heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the extent that the scripture informs my life. I'm under conviction when I'm lying. Th- does that make sense? Just to give a practical illustration, th- like Thursday night, I came home after a pretty long day and, and then, uh, you know, a long time in the car. And when I got home and uh, I sat with my wife, like, I can see it now. I didn't see it then. Just a litany of complaining. Just a litany of complaining. Why are there people living in our house besides you and me? Why, you know, why, why, why is this commute so long? Why do we have to live up here? Why can't we live down? Why, you know, why, why about work? You know, why about this? Why about you? Why about me? Just complaining. And then I, and then I get up uh, on Friday morning to finish the sermon and I do this exact thing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, here it is, you can preach it and not live it. Do you see? So, so when he says in 2 Corinthians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it's like, hey, to the extent that I'm planted by this river and the scriptures are informing my life, the Holy Spirit has a means now whereby the Holy Spirit can bring conviction. But if we never show up, then we don't gain that conviction. That's why Mary's exalted. Not because she's a mystic. We don't know. She's exalted because she is interested in her own transformation. And you can, man, you can be a doctor. You can be, you can be retired. You can be in finance. You can be in real estate. You can be a Boeing. And be a tree planted by God. It's a deal. So, uh, the, re- the vision, a community responsive to Revelation, so that we move from barren to fruitful, from soul to spirit, from old to new. And finally, and, and briefly, at the, as we close here, the means for transformation is revelation. Like the only way I'll be transformed is through revelation. And, and uh, so uh, that's why we're told that we have these various teaching ministries, Ephesians 4.10. But I want to give you a bit of a warning, uh, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's an appropriate warning for all of us who take the scripture seriously, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees about the value of scripture and actually the danger of scripture in John chapter five, where he says this to the the Pharisees who were like schooled in uh, understanding scripture, memorizing scripture, 
teaching the scripture, defending the scripture. Here's Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And yet, verse 40, and yet you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. And so the, the danger that all of us face in the room, and particularly, I would say, we who teach regularly, the danger is this, that we can know the text, know about the text, know the stories, but cut ourselves off from the reality of encountering the living, resurrected Jesus to whom the stories speak. Does that make sense? I can know the text and miss Christ. So, so Christ is the source of transformation, not the text. And uh, we, we gather not, as a, not as, a, as a lecture hall gaining information. It's not the point. We gather to encounter Christ. And if what I gain in my mind doesn't lead me to this, then I've missed it entirely. I've missed it entirely. And and the world is, the evangelical world is filled with people who know the text and defend the text, but don't know Christ. The text is not a source of transformation. Christ is a source of transformation. So God provides teachers who speak to the whole community. That's why uh, we have this little movie about how we study together every Monday so that we can all bring our collective wisdom. Highlight of my week, hanging out with Brad and Jack and that team. And to be blunt, rather unique in the world, what we're doing right now. Very exciting. That's good. We do that. Uh, but the point of doing that then is to share what we've learned with you in hopes, in hopes that you will then be motivated to read the scriptures for yourselves, not for gaining information, but for encountering Christ. When I was, um, when I was young, I, I attended... Um, uh, a lecture, I guess I'd say, at Mount Hermon down in California, a Christian camp. I was 11 or 12 years old. I'd gone up to the, kind of the conference area from my grandmother's house just to buy some beef jerky. The, the, um, the speaker had a British accent. And so I, I, I was like this. I've never heard anything like this before. So I just went and sat in the back and listened to this guy speak. His name was John Hunter. He was speaking for Torchbearers, where I now speak. And uh, he had just written a book called Limiting God. One of the best financial decisions I ever made in my life was to not buy beef jerky after he spoke. Instead, they took my $2, I went to the, I went to the bookstore and I bought his new book, Limiting God. I can't even tell you, uh, like, I wouldn't be here right now were it not for that little book. Because what that did to me as a 12-year-old is it opened my eyes to understanding how the whole Bible fit together. Like, it opened my eyes. And so suddenly now, like, I read the book, but the book became for me, if if I can describe it this way, the book became a portal. It was like the wardrobe is to Narnia, Right? The book became important. So now, I'm no longer just 
like I read the book, great. But what happened because I read the book is I started reading the Bible. Does that make sense? And, the, and then reading the Bible, it's not just that I became a Bible teacher, though that's great. But reading the Bible, is, that's how I encounter Christ. And that's why then when my dad died, Jesus became in a very real way my best friend. Because there's a scripture that's there. There's this river that's there. So it says in 1 Peter 2, to all of us, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. The primacy of teaching at Bethany isn't for entertaining, though Brad's very funny. The primacy of teaching isn't, isn't even for motivating. The primacy of teaching is to, is, is to encourage you then to plant yourself as a tree by the living water that is Christ and receive from the text yourself revelation of Jesus so that you move, right? From soul to spirit, from greed to generosity, from, from fear to boldness, movement. Transformation, God's business. Your business, showing up, beholding. And the work begins. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that uh, you've given us uh, a text that lives in the sense that it reveals Christ and brings us right to your feet, enabling us to uh, know you, encounter you, and enjoy as a byproduct of that encounter encounter, uh, ongoing transformation. Teach us, Father, to be people who are continually developing habits of showing up so that your desire to transform us can continue. And we'll thank you for that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.